Hello, and welcome to the Genesis Church Podcast. We're so excited you decided to join us today. All right, now let's check out a recap of this past Sunday's experience. We hope you are blessed. I've been posting the last few days about making sure that you show up to church today, and we just only started. So I'm Scott Hunter. I'm the lead pastor here. We are in a numerology series. If you'll give me some house lights so people can open up their words today and follow along. We're, we're in this series where we're stuttering, studying why numbers matter to God. Like, what are their significance? You know, why should that even matter to us? And the answer is, well, we've got to kind of unlock God's combination so that we might understand his ways, his heart, the why he does what he does, right? His intentionality behind every move that he makes because everything he does is intentional. And when you do see this come where like it, it unlocks, like it, it, it opens up your mind so that you might be able to see how his hand is at work in every single area of your life because everything he does concerns every area of your life. So this lock has been my nemesis. I hate this thing. Last week, I tried a shortcut, and I was like, I'm going to do it where I just have to pull down. It's going to be on the last number. No, totally failed, and I had to live out my middle school nightmare in front of you and unlock the lock. And I was like, Lord, if this doesn't work, I'm going to look like the biggest idiot, right? I took the long way to open the lock. Why am I telling you this when you witness me doing this in front of you really badly? It's to remind you there's no shortcut into knowing God. We have to study who he is, right? In order to really know him, not know about him, to know him. And that takes time, that takes walking in relationship with Jesus Christ, listening to him and seeing what he reveals from his word and from his spirit of what he wants to do in us and through us and how we get to be a part of his significant story, right? We can get to be a part of the story that has changed the entire world because he designed it so. And so we use spiritual disciplines like seeking him in prayer and reading our word, but there's a difference between reading and studying, right? So today we're going to deep dive again, and we're going to study some of this stuff. And we've been looking at numbers and what, why specific numbers matter to him. Why does he keep repeating certain numbers? And today we're going to conclude with the number three. Why end the series with three? What does it mean in biblical numerology? The number three signifies harmony, God's presence and his wholeness, his completeness. Now, how does that differ than seven, right? Well, I love this. If there was ever a desire to like highlight something, uh, a thought or an event, or even noteworthy, give somebody some kind of like laud, right? So a noteworthy figure in the Bible, if you wanted to mark them with prominence, you use the number three to do so. It was a divine stamp of completion, of fulfillment on that person, on that subject at hand. So this today is a divine stamp on a series. Listen, I'm telling you, I'm going to preach today. Amen. You in the front row, you are in the spit zone. I apologize. I've already like spit all over my iPad. But I'm pumped over the number three. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to try very hard not to Pentecostal Scotty you today. So if I start screaming, 
I'm sorry, but this message is fire. So let me set this up. Number three, one of the most important numbers throughout all the Bible, okay? So one of the most significant events in the Bible was accompanied by this number or a number seven. So like when you see those things hit seven and threes, they, they both represent spiritual perfection, right? But we talked, number seven was about this, this mark, this stamp from seven saying that it is finished. Seven means it has been accomplished. It is to tetelestai on the cross where Jesus Christ on the seventh time of his seven statements uttered those words, it is finished. Now, number three has a different kind of spiritual perfection or vibe. It's about wholeness. It's about harmony, right? It's about the very presence of God showing up and showing off. And so you can easily see this, how the number three is connected to the Holy Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You can't get more perfect than the Trinity. And then it's also connected to the three patriarchs before the flood. You had Abel, you had Enoch, and you had Noah. All right, now flip-flop that. After the flood, look, you had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The New Testament has 27 books in it. You're like, that's not threes. Oh, yes, it is. It's three to the third power. Thank you very much. Three times three times three. And you know why it's connected to that? Because it's largely connected to Jesus. Look at Jesus' life with three. Three people saw him in the holy transfiguration of Jesus Christ when they went up to the mountain and God revealed in all of his glory to who? Three, Peter, James, John. Three times Jesus prayed in the garden before he was arrested. Three, Jesus goes days later and is that next day nailed on the cross and you see in the third hour of that day is when he's nailed. At the ninth hour, which he dies, is at 3 p.m. Surely you're recognizing that three represents this number then that relates to us eternal life. Death to life. Jesus Christ was resurrected three days later. That's some powerful stuff. You ready for some more? Let me lay this on you. The number three, it's also a symbol of power, of God's power. God describes himself in this triple phase construction. It's very common for the Bible, but he says, I am God, which is, which was, and is to come. God's throne room is located in what Paul says is the third heaven, the space that existed before all time existed. So number three, it gives power to action. It harmonizes everything, wraps it up in a beautiful gift wrap and a little bit of bow and a little punch inside, right? When you open it and it makes everything complete. There's no other story that screams to me the tension of three, of three's power to me than the three days in which Jesus was in the grave awaiting his final stamp of victory with this <laughs> magnanimous earth-shaking return. After Jesus said it was finished on the cross, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19, 30, his dead body remained on the cross until it was taken down and placed in a nearby tomb. You can read about this in, in John 19, 40 through 42. His spirit, however, was elsewhere. Three days later, his body and spirit were reunited and he rose from the dead and he ascended as recorded in John 20. Now, listen, I don't know if you've ever studied this, but there's some speculation of what was happening 
with Jesus' spirit in those three days during the death and resurrection. And I want to take you through those three days biblically, okay? Not based on some tradition of some kind of church sect or denomination or, or, or whatever you've heard, not through any kind of myth or something that somebody has made up and you've read in the story somewhere. I'm ripping it straight from scripture. Scripture interprets scripture alone. So anyone ever been curious about those three days? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Hold on to your seat. You're about to have your heads blown off. All right, you ready for this? Like, mine's exploding all over. So watch out for brains next to you. Just jab and weave. Here we go. You ready? The clearest indication that we have of what scripture says about Jesus between his death and resurrection, that three-day period, it obviously comes from his own mouth, his conversation that he had on the cross with the thief who was crucified next to him, the one that chose to believe. Do you remember? The believing, thinks, the believing thief asks, hey, remember me, Jesus, when you go into your kingdom. Jesus replied, Luke 23, 43, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. So after death, Jesus went to the place, a blessing where God is, that is heaven. And that is where we will go to, the same place where the believing thief went to. If you will <laughs> believe in your heart and you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. In the discussion where Jesus was at for three days, you see all these theologians talking about this and this, but here's another passage that's often mentioned, and it comes to us from Peter. He says, in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, so now some scholars, they take this to mean that Jesus, sometime between death and resurrection, he went to hell, okay, and made this announcement of some type to those spirits imprisoned there. Within this interpretation, the spirits, you know, we can address them as fallen angels, demonic influences. Or, or even humans, but the spirits mentioned in 1 Peter 3.19 are fallen angels. Then those spirits who have been imprisoned because they were involved with some kind of grievous sin in this earth before the flood of Noah's time. If you read through all that stuff, you'll see some really freaky deaky stuff in the beginning of Genesis, right? Peter mentions Noah's flood in verse 20, but Peter does not tell us what Jesus proclaimed to those imprisoned spirits but it cannot have been a, a message of redemption that I'm coming to get you because angels cannot be saved and these are fallen angels. Hebrews 2.16 says, we know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham, you, me. So if we were talking about in this moment, these fallen angels, then Jesus then had to go to them and prepare a statement to declare victory through the cross over Satan and all of his hosts. First Peter 3.22, now Christ has gone to heaven and he is seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and power accept his authority. It's victory lap time, guys. You who follow Lucifer and got kicked out of heaven, you picked the wrong team. 
He told them, you lost, you are wrong. I am the I am. I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. There is none like me. You, you will never have my people because of the cross. You will never have any choice but to accept my authority because of the cross, because you are forever defeated. Look at Colossians 2.15. It gets better. I'm telling you, I'm going to jump off the stool. In this way, he disarmed, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. And he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. He stamped the meaning of the cross over all of hell. Boom, boom, boom. All you did not believe. You are defeated. You will never be greater than the God of that is, is who was and is to come. For I am. And the next time that we face and we meet, the sting of this cross of this moment will be so much greater because you will face your final defeat and your final demise. Three, the stamp is marked stamp of power. Okay, now we're going to take this slow bullet. I'm going to teach you something else that's super rad that comes from Ephesians. All right, so Paul starts talking. It's another passage. It's used in discussion regarding Jesus' activities during those three days between death and death. And resurrection. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, Paul says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does that mean? But he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things, that all the expanse of all of time and all of history and all of the universe is filled with the power of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's quoting Psalm 68, 19 or 18. And Paul says this about Christ. When he ascended on high, he took many captives. Ephesians 4, 8. The ESV, the English Standard Version, puts that Christ led a host of captives. Now, some say this refers to this event that's nowhere else described in, in scripture, meaning that Jesus, he gathered all those that were redeemed, that were in paradise, those that were faithfully waiting Jehovah God, and they were looking towards a Messiah coming, right? To the promised one. They were looking towards the cross. Like, so we look back at the cross, but they were looking forward to God showing up on earth. And Jesus had to take them from this paradise, this resting place, to their permanent dwelling in heaven. That is, after securing their salvation on the cross, Jesus brought Abraham, he brought David, he brought Joshua, he brought Daniel, he brought the beggar Lazarus that he promised, and the thief on the cross, and everybody else who had put faith in God and lived the life that God said to live. And he gathered them up, and he took them from the place of the dead, and he took them to their final resting place, which is heaven, our spiritual home. Here's what you need to understand. The saints uh, 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 of the OT in death, it, this underworld is not something that you've seen and mucked up and like seen in like TV. Like in general sense, Hebrew, those that were believers rested in Sheol, that's Hebrew, okay? Or they rested in the Greek, what they called Hades. These terms are frequently used in scripture, and it just means a literal grave, the spiritual dead, the spiritual realm of the dead. So it's not a place of torment like hell. Jesus, otherwise, he was talking about Lazarus, right? He said Lazarus was being held in Abraham's bosom after his death. That means he's at a place of comfort. You can read that in Luke 16, 23. So they're in this paradise, this resting state 
at their deaths, the Old Testament saints, they didn't go to be imprisoned by the devil because they were not owned by the devil. The Lord says so in Psalm 23, 6, and Ecclesiastes 12, 7. So now they move from this resting place to a place that's beyond description, to a permanent home in the very presence of Almighty God that we know now as heaven. Ephesians 4 also states that Christ ascended on high. So not only did he go down there to take a victory lap and take the keys of death and the grave with him, he ascended on high. As he left his spiritual or his physical human body, his spirit was reunited. It was a welcoming, it was a homecoming. He got to go back home where he is reigning victoriously as the son of God. And in his triumph, Jesus had defeated and divinely stamped victory over, you guessed it, three things, three spiritual enemies. And I'm gonna wrap this up today and I'm gonna promise you, if the place doesn't lift this roof off in praise, if you do not shout, (laughs) the rocks are gonna cry out. Jesus stamped number one victory over the devil. Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the devil and all spiritual authorities. That's one of the greatest verses of victory in all of scripture. You need to go home. You need to memorize that. Christ disarmed Satan and his demons, meaning Jesus took their power away. Demonic forces, they can't rule you. They can only suggest to you. Greater is he that is in you, Christ. If you are a believer, he lives inside you. He has taken up residency via the power of the Holy Spirit. He is greater in you than than anything that you will ever face in this world because this world cannot touch you. Satan has no authority over you if you are a child of God. He might attack. He might try. He might try to make you miserable. But if you're a child of God, he doesn't own you. And he can't make you do anything. He is not your master. Christ, the living king, is your master and your redeemer and your rescuer and your best friend. Colossians 2.15 is not talking about some kind of underworld war that happens. If you've heard that kind of stuff, I've heard that through mythology and and stuff in Catholicism, that's, that's not true. Jesus already won the war on the cross. Paul speaks about the legal debt that sinners had, that that Satan led to hold over us, Christ has now set this aside by nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. And because he nailed our debt to the cross, there is no power of hell that can take you from him. No one can condemn us, says the apostle Paul, Colossians 2.16. Satan's gonna love to try, but you can tell Satan to go to hell. That's where he belongs. You have my permission to say that. Kids don't say that in any other context. (laughs) But this is how Jesus disarmed the powers. Christ has taken away Satan's power to hold sinners to the debt of their sins and their trespasses. He has taken away the power to hold you to all the things that you've done wrong and to make those wages of sin cost you your life. No, 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 no. Jesus stepped in and Jesus paid off that debt with a big, loud stamp. Number two, Jesus stamped victory over death. Isaiah 25, eight. Yes, he'll banish death forever and God will wipe the tears 
from every face. He will remove every sign of disgrace from his people, wherever they are. Yes, God says so. Explanation point. I love that sentence. Yes, God says so. It's essentially because I said so. Woo, boy, do you know when your mama or your daddy said, because I said so, it meant it's time to stop arguing. You're never going to win it. He is right. She is right. You might as well drop it. You ain't going to win. And you don't have to have a reason because the reason is they are right. If dad says so, it's just, it just is. My God says, I will banish death forever. And I'm going to clean you up and there will be no sign of anything of you, of your past, of all the things you've ever done wrong, gone, wiped, clean as snow. The old is gone, the new life has begun. Because I said so. Just spit all over my iPad. If you believe in Jesus and you've surrendered your life to him, there is no doubt that there is an afterlife for you, that you will inherit eternal life as a believer, and it will be beyond description. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that this is why he came. He, he brought his only son, his one and only son, and that whoever will believe in him will not perish, will not die. But in that moment, you get everlasting life. Eternity is handed to you. John 5, 24, very truly, I tell you, says Jesus, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be judged, but he will cross over from death to life. And what will heaven be like? Revelation 21, 4, John, the revelator says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death. There will be no mourning. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more of the pain that you're going through this morning. For the order of the old things, the things that we are stuck in in this broken world, all of that stuff, gone. It will have all passed away. Finally, <laughs> number three, Jesus stamped the victory over the curse of sin. Meaning we are no longer under the curse of sin because of the blood of Jesus. If you were covered by the blood you are not under the curse of sin. You are no longer a sinner. You are now considered in his eyes a saint. I'm like, that's pretty, that's pretty big stuff. Because I wear that half holy, half hood shirt. And I think there are more days where I'm really three quarters hood than I am even half holy. Like I, but that's not how the Lord sees me. He gets the law demanded that the wages should cost me my life. That what I had done equals the wrath of God towards our sin. And it means death. So Jesus stepped in, took the punishment, and he traded his life for ours. So therefore, by the cross, I love this. He rested. W-R-E-S-T-D. Not rested, but he rested us from Satan. What does that mean? It means to forcibly pull those under the curse of sin away from Satan's grasp. Y'all, it's called the snatchback. If you're in football, it's illegal. It's the horse collar. Jesus would whoop. Mm. Meaning he rested you. You were on the edge and the verge of destroying your life. And you called out, God, I need you. 
snatched you back. And see, the the accusations of our past and our trespasses and all those things that we think that, man, I'm never going to be good enough. It's not about being good. It's about being saved. And the accusations of your past and your trespasses that Satan tries to throw at you all the time, it no longer works. You know why? Because you've been rested. See, accusation is the chief, the chief activity of Satan. Just to get in your ear and start talking smack, right? But Christ has wrested this weapon from Satan. And he says, no more devil. The curse of sin has been broken. That's my child. And if they believe in me, I break it off of them. For the old is gone. New life has begun. They've crossed over from death to life. Because I make all things new. Aren't you glad your God is victorious? I praise him for what happened in those three days, man. We think that Jesus was, you know, in the grave and his body was just there. But I'm telling you, so much was happening. He may not have been present with us, but oh, he was busy putting the final stamp on his victory. And the one thing that we know for sure, for sure, for sure, that Jesus did not suffer any hell. No, 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 no. Not in any of that did he ever suffer in hell in the time of the grave. Jesus was just doing victory laps stamps on everything. The cross, the cross, defeated, 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 righteous, king, king of kings, lord of lords. Coming back really soon. BRB, right? And in the depths, in heaven, he was just waiting for that moment to start shaking all of the earth. Because wait, oh wait, three days. Three, three days, three. Yeah, they came three days later and the victory stamp came to the earth. Look at Matthew 28, two through seven. Suddenly there was an earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone that nobody could push around. Ready? And then he just sat on it like, mm, it's my job. Listen, and he said, his face, it was shown. It was blowing up like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards, they shook with fear and they peed in their pants and they saw him and they felt like dead. They put... They fainted. And then the angels who spoke to the ladies who didn't pass out. Right, ladies? Mm. They They were there to go prepare his body. And he said to them, don't be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he isn't here. He is risen from the dead. He got up just like he said it would happen. Now come and see where his body was laying. All the cloth collapsed like a cocoon and a butterfly, boom, down. And you can go and tell his disciples, he said, that he's risen from the dead and and he's going to go ahead of you in Galilee and you're going to see him there. Now remember what I told you. How could you forget that? Remember what I told you. Christ is alive. I'm pretty sure. Eyes be bugging out of their head. Heart stopped. Had a mini stroke. It's okay. Came back, shook it off, right? Let's listen. If Jesus never walked out of the tomb, we would still be searching for someone or something to put our faith in and our hope in. Oh, but oh, three, because of three, because of the resurrection, 100% that happened. The grave is not final. He got up and his victory lap is our victory lap. And we know by faith that one day we will be with this victorious Jesus face to face because he has promised us that it 
is our gift, that we have inherited eternal life and we get to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever, forever. Revelation 1, 5 through 6, and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things. He's talking about the end. From the rise from the dead to the ruler of the kings of this world, all glory will be to him. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests. <laughs> you are seen as holy and righteous and covered by the blood for God, his father, and all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. I said all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you for joining us here at the Genesis Church Podcast. Remember, you can join us every Sunday at 10.31 a.m. on all social media platforms. You can also join us in person every Sunday at 10.31 right here at 4070 Mission Road in Tallahassee. God bless you and have a great day.